Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We'll soon be announcing our 2023 festival program, so make sure you receive the announcement by signing up to our e-newsletters at swf.org.au forward slash subscribe. Until then, we hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, Bujeti Kamaru. Hello, good afternoon and welcome um, to this session of the Sydney Writers' Festival. Uh, I want to begin by acknowledging that we are all gathering on Gadigal land and pay my respects to their elders uh, past and present and acknowledge that this is stolen land, that sovereignty was never ceded over this land. Um, I'm delighted to be here with everyone for this session. We're going to be talking about changing hearts and changing minds. And with that said, I'd like to introduce our panel. So moving from um, stage left to stage right, um, or stage right, I don't know which way. Starting with Carl. Carl Rhodes is uh, the Dean and Professor of Organisation Studies at the University of Technology, Sydney's Business School. He writes about ethical and democratic dimensions of business and work, and endeavours to question and reformulate the role of business in society so prosperity can be shared by all. His most recent books are Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy, Organising Corporeal Ethics, and Disturbing Business Ethics. And he tweets at at Prof Carl Rhodes. Sara Saleh is a poet, writer, activist, and the daughter of migrants from Palestine, Egypt, and Lebanon, living on Gadigal land. Sara's writing has been published in English and Arabic in various outlets, and she's spoken and performed in classrooms, community spaces, and at festivals nationally and internationally. In 2021, she won both the Peter Porter and Judith Wright Poetry Prizes. Her debut novel, Songs for the Dead and the Living, is out next year with a firm press, and she's a proud Bankstown Poetry Slam Slambassador. And she tweets it at Sarah Saleh Oz. Finally, Thomas Mayer is a Kororeg Aboriginal and Kulkagol Erebambele Torres Strait Islander man who lives on Larakia country in Darwin. He's a union official with the Maritime Union of Australia and the author of four books. Two of his books are about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which we'll hear from later. And his most recent book is Dear Son, Letters and Reflections from First Nations Fathers and Sons. Um, and he tweets it at Tom Mayer 11. And my name is Matthew Beard. I'm a husband, a dad, a philosopher, and I am the program director of a program called the Vincent Fairfax Fellowship, which is run at the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership. And I'm the resident podcaster on a kids' ethics podcast called Short and Curly, which is produced by the ABC. And I tweet at, at Matthew T. Beard. There's two T's in Matthew, one T in T, and no T's in Beard. <laughs> and with that said, I want to start us off. So we're going to be talking about changing hearts and changing mind. And most of you will have read the write-up and the description about the inertia that we have on so many enormous social issues, the, the social challenges that come with persuasion and the work of persuasion. So I want to do something different when I introduce this session. I'm going to ask you all to just close your eyes for a moment and think of a time when you actually had a change of mind or a change of heart. And I want you to ask yourself why. What happens that made you change your mind or experience that change of heart? How did it feel? And was there a period where there was a gap between when you experienced that change of mind or change of heart and when you admitted that to yourself and admitted that to the people around you? And I want you to hold that experience in mind because so often when we talk about these social issues, 
We forget that the people who we are trying to talk to, who are changing or not changing, are experiencing all of those very same tensions that you'll be bearing in mind right now. So I'd like to hold that in mind. And I want to start this panel discussion um, with you, Carl, um, as, a, as someone who works in ethics and philosophy, to make some distinctions for us. Um, what is the difference between changing a heart and changing a mind? What do we mean by these terms? Um, it's hard to say exactly what we mean, but there's a tradition of thinking in Western thinking that really separates out mind from body um, that goes back you know, to the origin of Western thinking in, uh, in Greece. But I think it's important to question the distinction. There's a, there's a great book by uh, uh, Australian philosopher Genevieve Lloyd called The Man of Reason where she traces uh, the distinction of rationality, often associated with masculinity, and with emotionality, often associate, more commonly associated with femininity, again, in, in Western cultures, and how that, that reflects uh, hierarchies between men and women and, and similar hierarchies between, um, uh, between reason and emotion, and suggesting that you know we have traditionally um, seen reason as being superior, it's the mind as being superior to the body, um, and that this really needs to be questioned, and that, that uh, and it needs to be questioned on gendered grounds, it needs to be questioned on equality grounds, but also practical grounds, because if we to think of ethics, it always, um, uh, to my way of thinking at least originates with a feeling, originates with an impulse, the moral impulse to, to actually care for other people. It originates with love. Um, and these are emotional matters at, at, the, at the heart of anything we're going to do ethically. Sarah, I'm really interested in your thoughts here as well, because um, whilst, whilst your bio describes you as a poet, you've also just graduated with a master's degree with a law degree or a postgraduate law degree. Um, and so you sit on both sides of this, right? There's a sort of, there is something of the poetry that speaks to the heart and speaks to the affect. And then as a lawyer, you have mastered the crafting of arguments and the presentation of, of evidence. So how do you see these, those two aspects of your expertise connecting to one another? Okay. To be clear, I haven't mastered anything. I'm just going to set that <laughs> expectation. So let's not get too wild. Um, I think that Probably like Carl, I've been thinking a lot about this um, question, but I actually don't necessarily agree or see it as a binary. In a sense, I don't think that it needs to be one or the other, but more so an, an alignment. And what does that look like when you are changing hearts and minds? And is there really a heart versus mind distinction? And so if we were actually to, for instance, um, just take a step back from Eurocentric modes of thinking. Uh, so, for example, in my tradition, talking about um, Islam, in Islam, the heart is actually uh, the center of your body. And so uh, in Arabic, the word for heart is qalib. And even though your brain is where, you know, sort of um, superficial intellect is where, um, you know, you, you take in information on a, on a superficial, in a superficial manner, um, the heart is actually what is capable of deeper understanding. So qalb, heart in Arabic, actually means to turn the state or one state of something into another state. And that could easily mean, you know, taking in blood and pumping it out into fresh oxygen. But I also like to think that there's a deeper meaning there. And so for me, um, 
I do think that there is a very deep and rich and vast uh, tradition not just Muslim communities, but also across, um, if you look at black feminist radical thinking, that says uh, there is no reason for reason to be uh, to trump or to be seen as more superior than emotion. And the key is to actually think therefore you are, but feel because you are also free. I think we're, we're less than 10 minutes in and we've completely rejected the premise <laughs> of the panel, which is a great start. Um, Thomas, if we move from the sort of conceptual question of is there a distinction between these and talked about your experiences um, working in the maritime unions, working on docks, and then travelling around Australia with the Uluru Statement, talking to people about their attitudes towards it, and actually on the ground in advocacy and activism, if we thought about that distinction between do we persuade people with rational argument or do we aim to move them through some kind of experience or feeling... Just on the effectiveness of both of those, what, what has your experience been? Yeah, I think, um, I think very much they're connected. You know, you have to capture people's hearts and minds, as they say, um, to win a campaign. Um, and I think if you, if you think about the mind, I think you're talking about um, knowing, you know. And I think certainly uh, when we're talking about the Uluru Statement, for example, I think already most Australians know the truth, you know, um, in their minds, they, they um, Australian people know that First Nations people have been terribly wronged. Um, they know that the statistics are bad. You know, there's closing the gap reports every year. They fail each year. Um, but to um, the difference from knowing for the heart, it's about feeling enough to do something about it. And so it's one thing to, to for people to know the truth. But you have to humanise this problem, and that's the heart part, to move them to take action. And so I, I think, um, you know, that's why the Uluru Statement's so important in, in those really eloquent and powerful words. Um, they do that. You know, you've got the beautiful artwork that's around the statement itself. You've got the process that led to it, you know, and all these people coming together, achieving a, a political feat that should be celebrated in this country forever, you know, reaching a consensus, um, as we did. Um, and that we are able to both capture people's hearts and minds in this campaign, I think, is, is a, a really important ingredient to, to succeed, and, and we've got momentum. There's a, a quote from the um, philosopher Frederick Nietzsche where he says, it's not enough to show someone the truth, we have to seduce them to it. And his argument was that it, it's not about rational argument, that there is a sensory experience that needs to accompany that, that people need to want to be led to a particular truth. But that can lead to a suspicion of people who trade on the kind of seduction. Like, you know, someone being seduced feels like they've lost agency. Even in the language of capturing a heart, there's a sort of question about the, the intentions of the person who does that. And I, it makes me wonder about the mechanisms that we use for persuasion and the mechanisms that we use for affect and whether this is all a matter of whether the cause is just or not or whether even if we have a kind of just cause that there are certain methods and mechanisms that we wouldn't countenance. Carl, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, the thing about changing minds along this way uh, that you've described in terms of seduction, it sounds a lot like propaganda um, and influence in this way. And 
I mean, if anyone embarks on, a, on, a, on an endeavor of writing, for example, specifically designed for someone else to behave in a specific, different way, that's really a form of manipulation um, and, a, and a dubious one at, at that. I mean, to what, why would I somehow decide that I should decide what you should do? But at the same time, that doesn't mean, I don't think that means that writing's not uh, about other people changing. But I think it can also have a, it can have a more educational uh, kind of process and, and more about growing people's awareness. Um, I mean, my book, Woke Capitalism, which is a kind of awful term that's been used now, but if you go back, for example, to the, to the 1960s when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his uh, uh, speech about being awake to the revolution, the notion of being awake is being aware of what's going on so that you can make uh, better, better choices. And I think this is probably a better way, for me at least, to think about what we might do as writers rather than trying to build someone else in the image of my own morality. I mean, the worst thing we want to fear is the moralist. So how does that intersect? And I'm curious to hear from you, Sarah, around this. One of the, one of the mechanisms of change which has sometimes been seen as being coercive in some ways is, of course, boycotting and sort of social movements that are aimed toward, you know, actually eliciting an explicit behaviour change, you know, whether we call it shaming or cancel culture or there are boycotts, you know, we're lumping a lot of categories together there, but there does tend to be a trend in social commentary, in social movements and in social media, which is about eliciting the change in view or the change in behaviour not necessarily about, you know, that, that kind of humility that casts, who, who am I to say? Well, I am me to say that you should think differently. Um, how do you see the relationship between that sort of, that humility that's required to say, well, it's, it's not my place to prescribe the way that people should live, but also I have a kind of conviction about what ought to happen here um, that means that I do think your behavior needs to change. To go back slightly to the earlier question, um, because I think it's somewhat tied, we're talking about um, getting people to change their hearts and change their minds. And so on the flip side, it's on us to do the persuading, but it's also on the other hand, there is an onus on the person who is receiving. There are two parties, two actors in this um, you know, in this, in this situation or in this relationship. So I think firstly, we need to be responsible for ourselves. We do have agency in that we are open to that. Um, and that includes also being able to, to feel and in all the ways that we've spoken, because, uh, you know, to drop Maya Angelou, um, the poet, you know, she says, um, people rarely often remember what you do, but they remember how you make them feel. So that's something that we need to be open to. It's also a matter of um, being uh, aware of the information that we're consuming, the sources of information. We have a responsibility to be able to go and seek the knowledge. So yes, it's on me to campaign and convince and persuade and craft master arguments, but it's also for people to go out there and listen and try and find, you know, uh, appropriate information sources, which brings me to the point around boycotts, because I also know that that is not very easy. We are living in an age where there is so much misinformation, and part of that is also linked to power. When you 
feel like you have very little um, impact, where you do not have power to change things, to affect change, that can also make you feel helpless, that can make you feel frustrated. And it's also, um, a, 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 I think, a very, uh, by design, like it is deliberate. We are deliberately being distracted and manipulated and misdirected with this sort of information by people who have power. So for me, or people in positions of power or, you know, government system structures. So, and that might seem overwhelming, but I'm getting to the point where it's actually not because we do have tools such as mechanisms, uh, boycott mechanisms to be able to say, well, I'm going to use this boycott uh, to raise awareness, to provide information on a particular cause, and to hold people that are in power to account because clearly the channels that we have are not working. And so if I could specifically just very quickly uh, delve into the example of Palestine and the fact that, you know, when we have been um, advocating for the boycotting of the apartheid regime and apartheid state of Israel, um, we have been persecuted, we have been silenced as Palestinians, and th there is a very... Um, I think there's a very uh, useful way that we have tried to use boycotts to shine a light on what's going on and to bring people along to that journey and say, you actually have a choice. If you do A, you can impact and, and you know, have B be the, be, the, be the answer, be the solution. With Ukraine, on the other hand, I feel like there's been a really big um, and, and very open and willing response to people boycotting Russia. And one has to ask, why is it so easy that we've accepted boycotts as this tool when it comes to a, a Russia, but not so much when it comes to Israel and what it's doing in Palestine? Question back to you, Matt. Yeah, no, I, 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 as, as is my right, I'm going to bounce the question along. Um, because... One thing that I'm quite curious about is the, when we're involved in that kind of process of, you mentioned power, and I think power is such a critical element of this. Um, so Carl, you have some concerns about the ways in which we can target power for change, but also in so doing kind of consolidate that power. And part of what you're arguing in, in woke capitalism is that, you know, the more that we ask for, you know, large capitalist organizations to be the, the battleground of social progress, um, given that their power is connected to wealth, we are essentially handing over our moral progress to, you know, to the very wealthy institutions. And that strikes me as a challenge. I do want to hear from you as well, Thomas, on this, the question of activism. Do we go to where the power and money is, even though we hate that money and power is the thing that gets to dictate this, or is there something else we need to be doing at the same time? It's difficult uh, a question, isn't it? I mean, when um, I mean traditionally, one would have thought of big corporations as rather dull, conservative places who have, you know, whose interest in politics was of a, of a particular of a particular type. I mean, it's only in recent years, um, uh, since the late 90s, uh, especially, that corporations have have become more and more involved in what traditionally would have been seen as progressive or even left. Um, social causes, whether it be marriage equality, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, the Me Too movement uh, being, being some big examples. Again, I think it's a political question. I mean, if we're to be pragmatic and think, well, if Nike is supporting 
the stuff that I believe in, then I should support them, even though we might question whether their motives are commercial or political, or even question whether the distinction between the commercial and the political makes sense anymore, um, given what's going on. But uh, to my mind, it's still important to have a, a separation in terms of, in terms of um, uh, politics. So a separation between the economic, which is in, uh, in a capitalist tradition, is in, through the pursuit of private interests, and uh, politics, which is the pursuit of, through the pursuit of public interests. And when you confuse these, it generally turns out that the private interests uh, tend to win because inequality is widening. You know, the CEOs who, who might be uh, quite happy to kind of uh, spruik uh, various causes, they're not talking about increasing minimum wages, they're not talking about universal basic income, they're not talking about CEO pay, they're not talking about economic inequality, progressive taxation. It's a control of an agenda that deserves to be public, being controlled based on how wealthy you are. And that essentially is a plutocracy, and at worst will be a return to a kind of uh, feudalism. So I, I, I think it's deeply problematic. Thomas, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, you're a union man as well as someone who is engaged really deeply in, um, in the Uluru Statement. And so I'm, I'm really interested in your perspective. Yeah, I think, um, I think the, the tools that we have as um, those that, uh, that don't have power, you know, the, the tools that we have to build our power and get the changes that we need or the outcomes that we need um, are extremely important. And, um, and that's why those tools are taken away from us or, you know... Uh, you know, I mean, we used to be able to have, um, what do you call it, the, the boycott, the, yeah, you know, we could, unions could boycott for social issues, you know, and in solidarity, you know, um, against apartheid in South Africa. Um, we had uh, much more ability to stop ships from carrying oil to South Africa, which, is, which was a really powerful part of, um, of stopping, you know, the apartheid regime, was that seafarers and wharfies you know, um, put boycotts on those ships. Those sorts of things are very important. Um, and as this inequality continues to get worse, um, there, there needs to be an awakening, you know, so our book writing is important, um, you know, things that move people's hearts and minds are important. Um, and then, you know, to, to bring it to the Uluru Statement now, as far as what First Nations people are doing, I mean, we've established one of the, the most important thing I think that the Uluru Statement calls for is the establishment of a voice. And I understand this as a trade unionist because the first thing that you do before you can get a good agreement, you know, or a treaty, you must have a strong representative body. You need to have the workers' voice. Um, and every time that we've established a voice in the past, it's been silence. You know, ATSIC uh, more recently, 2005, Howard just crossed it out with a majority of parliament. But there were many voices um, we had created many representative bodies before that. And so we've learnt that the real power here, as far as a nation goes, is in the Constitution. And so we want to constitutionally guarantee that we will always have a voice and that gives us power. That makes me think of something that I'm, I'm open to. Um, I might go to you first, Carl, and then open it to everyone on this, which is that part of the reason why you changed the Constitution and change the bedrock of the nation is so that you 
don't have to keep changing people's hearts and minds. Like, it's just part of the environment that we're in that certain people are recognised and treated in certain ways. And there's an emerging body of research that says, forget, forget persuading people. Like, forget changing minds, change behaviours, and then the change of mind kind of happens after that. And this is in, you know, there are really boring examples of this. Like, if you change a nation's policy on whether they have to opt in or opt out of organ donation, you see about a 70% increase in the amount of people who are organ donors. Um, and it's called, you know, nudge theory in behavioural economics. So do we change people's minds first or do we change the structures and environments that they're in? So do we persuade people that we should take in more refugees, for example, or do we just change the policy and then as people kind of that becomes normalised then people become more comfortable with that because that's exactly how oppression works. They don't persuade people that, hey, you should hate this kind of particular group of people. They systematically, systematically through policies, exclude them and that practice becomes normalised. Why don't we do that in reverse, Carl? I mean, when you talk about this, you know, nudging and so forth, and also that then becomes enhanced technologically, again... How certain can one be of one's own moral position? And I speak from a position of, of privilege in many ways. I'm a professor, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm white, uh, I'm Australian. Um, but from what point of authority, does one, moral authority, does one decide to change somebody else's behavior, to change how, how they think? You know, or suddenly do we all just start employing Cambridge Analytica to start doing our political campaigns? Um, so without actually engaging with people and involving people and, 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 and building change in this way, I think it then becomes a, a form of m manipulation. I mean, to the point, there's no consensus building with nudging. You know, it's just about, it is just a form of manipulation. And to be able to do that, you have to, you have to believe you are morally superior. That's a colonial mentality, that you, you're superior and you can go in and you go and tell everyone else what to do. I mean, in terms of First Nations people, that's exactly the mentality that's got us to the, to the position that we're in now. So I don't think that's um, a place to look for, for real positive change um, at all, no. Do you have any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, how is Gina Reinhardt not having access to the hallways of Parliament, for example, not being a, not a form of manipulation? And so I think for me, the, the question becomes, um, you know, there is an argument around, for example, the fact that in Australia we've got high voting rates or relatively high voting rates because it is mandatory. And whatever you think of that, that's mm. just um, what is the policy. Whereas as opposed to in the US where that's not the case um, because it isn't mandatory. And so they have um, lower, a much lower voting rate and especially in marginalized areas and amongst, you know, marginalized communities. So for me, there is... Uh, something to be said for the role of policy, but that has to go hand in hand with education, with raising awareness, with um, you know being informed and centering communities at the heart of that and listening to their voices. But as it stands right now, it seems that, as, as Carl said earlier, the gap is further widening and those with power continue to find ways to consolidate their power, perpetuate it, and use that to oppress communities. And the perfect example for me, or one example of that is, again, when you see big corporations, um, you know, uh, essentially 
opening up their pockets you know, endlessly to politicians. Here, we've got a bit more of transparency around that, I understand, but in the US, no. So I think, I think to myself, oh, if I had to look at this politician and think about where all their sponsorship, where all their money, where all their support is coming from, I wonder how many corporations, how many logos they would have to wear if we had to make them visibly wear it. Who would be behind this person? What interests are there? And we don't know that. We do not have that information. How is that not manipulation? Who is holding power and why are policies being made? And what do we need to do to change that? And which takes me back to, of course, as one example, measures of, of civil um, disobedience and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's a balance. I mean, you know, as far as... Uh, but then you have a look at, you know, the way the media has been so biased so terribly biased this election campaign it's just so blatant um and that that is like that's manipulation you know like it's it's such it's such a massive effort of manipulating the australian people to vote against their interests really when you've got a government that has done nothing about climate change that has ignored the uluru statement has done all of these awful things you know the corruption and everything like that and you've got you know for for people that aren't really informed, aren't really watching, aren't really, you know, getting the right information. This is all they see in the periphery of their vision. And then possibly on Saturday, they might get another run for another three years. You know, it's just, it is really scary, you know, and I think we do have a responsibility to try and influence people. Um, I don't think really coming from us um, to people around us, to, to point out that there's, there's things that are wrong and the, there is a real need for change in this country. I guess, can I just say, the, the question becomes, even uh, as a site of education and critical thought, you go to university and there are certain thinkers, such as Nietzsche and otherwise, that are, you know, they are the prime, they are the ones that are put um, to you. And there's obviously a whole wealth of thinkers around the world from all sorts of backgrounds that we don't get to hear from or read or even know about. And so that, to me, again, the question becomes, who decided that? Why is this the person that I'm learning about and learning from? Is this relevant to me and is this relevant to our society? Just because we've been doing something for a particular way for so long doesn't mean that that is the right way. And there yeah. has to be room for us to think about and be creative and imagine and be brave about doing other things. And it, it does start with individuals, it does start with us, and it does start with being critical about the systems that we are being subjected to, because even though I use the word system and structure, it is not invisible. It is not created by an invisible or maintained by an invisible hand. There are very, these are very real human-made systems and structures, and therefore the way to address them is also in our hands and very human-made. Uh, there's, a, there's something you said, you know, when we talked about nudging, nudging is the idea that, well, if we can control the conditions under which the choice happens, then we can get the outcome that we want. But that happens in invisible ways and often ways that aren't, no one person is the architect of. And so we find ourselves in these environments constantly through curriculum, through policy, through the way in which voting and discussion takes place. I, I want come to come to a point about the, the question of whether... Changing hearts and minds is, a, is a, something that we should be pursuing at the moment, or is our work actually even more basic at this point in time to 
create the kind of society where changing hearts and minds is possible. We've mentioned political donations, we've mentioned the upcoming election, so a couple of quick facts. Um, so last year there was about $177 million donated to political parties. We know about half of where that money came from. This election thus far, um, Clive Palmer alone has spent about $31 million um, in this electoral cycle so far. Um, so we do we, as an open question, have a current political and electoral system in which people win votes and earn votes through persuasion, or do we find ourselves in a situation where votes are purchased, either through money or through pork barrelling or through you know, trading on people's self-interest as opposed to the common good? I might start with you, Thomas, and then get a couple of thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's both at the moment, but as I was saying, you know, it's getting further and further towards votes being bought. I mean, the other thing that I didn't mention is I think um, there's been a purposeful dumbing down of, of Australians, you know, the, the, the defunding of universities. Um, you know, I think, I think there is a, a real effort to, to um, cause the public to think less about who they elect, you know, so... Yeah. Didn't else want to jump in? Um, I think it's a big problem with politics, and I think you're right. I was talking to a friend a little while ago, um, uh, and he was saying, if any of his children or grandchildren or nephews and nieces said to him, I've decided I want to be a politician, who, which living politician should I emulate? Who should I follow as my hero? And he said, I couldn't give him a single name. Um, I've asked that question to, a, this was earlier this year, I've asked that question to a, a few people, and most people are pretty stumped. Jacinta Ardern comes up uh, from time to time in response. But there's really a poverty of, in, in our political system of leadership, of vision, um, and it all becomes about, you know, you get, uh, it all becomes about, you know, electioneering and winning votes to get another uh, three years, four years, depending on where you are in power and unfortunately you then see you often see business people talking bigger about politics and you get elon musk the the free speech absolutist wanting to save democracy or at least that's what he says he wants to do i mean he's going to make even more become even more the richest man in the world and this is a little bit topsy-turvy kind of world so i think there's really a need for a new political imagination and a resurgence in political vision that can actually take us somewhere beyond just this, you know, the, uh, going into another stage of, of uh, kind of neoliberal excess and inequality and power abuse. I want to put us onto the other side of this question of changing hearts and minds, which is that I feel like we find ourselves in an environment where to admit that we have changed our mind or that we're uncertain about something is to look kind of wishy-washy as a matter of character. It's like to actually to be persuaded is to have lost because we're fighting for all of these ideas all the time. And, you know, there's research to suggest that um, every time someone is not persuaded to change their mind, they commit to their ideas even more strongly than before. <laughs> and yet we have this opinion economy where we collect and battle and trade opinions like they're Pokemon cards. So what 
what do you feel like needs to happen on an individual level in terms of our attitudes toward other people and the beliefs they hold and what it would mean for them to actually abandon a belief? Like what, what, what gives at the moment that makes that so hard? I think, um, I think we need to start young, you know. I think we need to teach our children better. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote uh, Dear Son. Um, you know, and I, and I say to my son, I write to my 20-year-old my son, um, you know, and, and reflect on how I behaved as a father, you know, and uh, the mistakes that I made and what I thought I could have done better and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, also looked at my, um, my own father's relationship with me. Uh, and I think um, the most important thing I wanted to say to my son was to keep an open mind and, you know, to allow empathy, you know, and, and to, um, to, to put yourself in other people's shoes type of thing, you know. Um, I think there's lots of great progressive books out there for children now as well, you know, like in the Uluru Statement campaign, after the first book, you know, for, for adults about the Uluru Statement, I, I realised just how children um, love to talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. And, um, you know, my children come home from school and always tell me about what they've learned about Larrakia language. I wrote a children's book about the Uluru Statement and, um, and I think that's making a real difference because kids love this stuff, right? And then they go home and tell the adults in their life and, and teach the adults in their life as well. Um, so I think it's really important for us to, to put a lot of effort into the next generation to have that open mind about, um, you know, things. Growing up, uh, a lot of our communities, specifically Muslim communities, uh, celebrated uh, what is called, quote-unquote, Australia Day as a way to, you know, um, feel some sort of sense of belonging, maybe, or for a variety of reasons, maybe a bit more of a model migrant marker, but that is the reality. And it wasn't until I was very lucky myself personally, for example, and my family members and, and uh, people from the Palestinian community were um, building relationships with First Nations communities and understanding and centering their voices and having them very generously you know, tell us because that information wasn't easily available or wasn't made available again, by design, to say that actually here are the facts, here's the knowledge, and this is also hurting us. And so, you know, do not continue to celebrate uh, what is a very painful day for us. This is actually Invasion Day. And so, uh, and a variety of other, obviously, names as well. But I guess my point in in sharing this story with you today is that one of the things that we need to be um, cognizant of is that we are people who will constantly be making mistakes and we need to be open to the fact that that is, you know, mistakes, accountability, repair, these are the cruxes of what social movements are and this is how we grow, being uncomfortable, being in this uncomfortable space and having, and, and it shouldn't, uh, let me also say, it shouldn't be on other people to constantly do the labor of educating us. As I said, it was a very generous thing but we do have, again, a we are privileged. We have the opportunity to go out there, to look for the information, do that unlearning, go to the places that you need to go, have the conversations, but ultimately hold yourself to account. Um, understand that you're going to make mistakes and do so with the humility. We're going to get to questions now. So we'll begin on this side. If you could remove your mask just for the purposes of asking the question. Thank you. I am just interested in any comments you would care to make about 
how the language of political correctness um, may affect in-depth conversations and uh, interactions between people in trying to change their hearts and minds. Right, so this is kind of connected to what you were just saying, right? The idea that we are, we're so afraid that, well, I would say that there is, particularly among privileged you know, people, white people, there is a fear that, well, I, I'd love to get involved in this, but the last thing I want is to be cancelled or harangued because I've, I've done it the wrong way. And I feel like it's better to do nothing than to get involved and get it wrong. I might hear from Thomas and Sarah on this particularly. Yeah, I think, um, I think this is something that should always evolve, you know, and if we're all listening to each other and caring about each other and uh, then, you know, then what's, you know, the right terms to use or, or you know, I think that's, that should always evolve. Uh, the, the difference is that the pe there's people that are saying that, you, you know, that the ignorance side really is saying, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to feel what you're feeling. I'm not going to put myself in your shoes. You know, that's, that's the big difference yeah. there. There are two ways that I can answer this. Angry, exhausted me would just be like, so what? Privileged people never get cancelled. Palestinians get cancelled. Muslims get cancelled. And lots of other communities, First Nations get cancelled for trying to speak truth to power and for trying to change things and raise awareness. But again, when you do not have little power, seemingly, it takes a long time to get to a point where you are being listened to. And then it's who decides the parameters of the conversation and, and what happens what are the consequences of that it is hard so so what you know take the risk get ca get cancelled you're not going to get cancelled but um, I think that that would be my first answer my second one if I were coming from a place of kindness which is this new thing I'm, I'm trying to really just you know <sighs> because of my ancestors my aunties they're like no we, we need to be kind um, but not to the extent that I you know subscribe to any sort of respectability politics but um, just that I do think that we are at the end of the day to an extent again part of the same struggle for justice we are going to have to as I said earlier understand that it is impossible to grow and learn and progress without making mistakes. And if, if you hurt people, if you say something and, and, you know, don't center yourself. It's not, I'm so afraid that I'm going to hurt someone. Well, actually, they've been hurt for decades and centuries, presumably. So try to maybe not center yourself in this conversation and ask don't be afraid to ask questions without putting the labor if you've already done the research. And if you've also done that, and if you make a mistake, how can I apologize genuinely? How can I repair? What can I do? And when I say, you know, take action, it's not the performative, So, and, and not to say that social media also isn't a, a valid platform, but it doesn't stop there. It's not performative. It's not... Um, about your ego. It is about this is hard daily work of undoing what you already might know and trying to maybe set the set the course right. It's not it's never too late. How's that for a kind answer? Okay. My aunties will be proud. <laughs> um, can we get another question up here please? Yes. Um, you've talked about having open minds. My question is, how do we change the average person who gets all their knowledge from um, the different commercial television programs that are on, from America and from us? And 
they don't like having an omelette. They usually have very close minds. So how do we get them to think of the big picture, to think of others? Yeah, thank you. I'm going to exercise moderator's privilege here just for one second to point out that we always assume that it's someone else who isn't open-minded. We are the open-minded <laughs> one, and they are the one who's not. That's a universal trend that I'm going to point out. But I do want to hear, um, Carl, from you on this. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the, the media is the case. If you're watching, you know, Tucker Carlson and Piers Morgan, um, that's one thing. But I think it's even probably more dangerous these days, not just with commercial media, but with social media, direct uh, the algorithms, direct to us the, uh, the things we want to read. So we don't read opposing views as much when, if we're accessing uh, news and media in this format, which creates an even broader kind of polarization, and the kind of polarizations that we're, we're inc increasingly seeing. I guess the question of what do we do also begs the question of who is the we that is doing the what, um, uh, if you like. Um, so I'm not sure uh, who get, that might be. Could I get you to go in a slightly different direction with this? Because the other thing that I'm asking is, that I'm interested in about, and I know you've got expertise in a, a philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas, who you know, thinks about the relationship that we have with the other. And one thing I'm always curious about is that when we talk about those people who have different beliefs to us, there's sometimes a utility. It's like, all I need to do is change your mind. And, and the personhood of that other person sort of disappears from the equation. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, but again, the idea of one person having the authority to decide that another person should be a different way. I mean, coming back to the discussion, that's the mentality that created the stolen generation that said that these kids had to be this way, like white people. So again, I'm really, you know, the idea that there is some we who should amass some kind of power and authority to influence other people in very specific ways. There's many examples of that in history, and they generally don't work out well. I think much more important is, is education. If you look at it in terms of the media, I mean, the role of the media as a, a bedrock of, of democracy, as opposed to just being a, a kind of tool of the wealthy. Again, these are old traditions that, that, uh, that have never really been realized. They've always been promises, but the, the promises are constantly broken. So I think public discourse, writing is part of that, being here is part of that. Education um, uh, is part of it. These are the, the important things. Not coming up with firm moral political positions that you then enforce on someone else. Because the we who does the enforcing will be the we of people who have power. Um, and this is how oppressions uh, are created. Oh, no. Another question here. Thank you. Thank you. This, this is... Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Very illuminating. I mean, I've been reading Pinker's book on rationality, and when you first started off saying rationality is a man's thing, uh, I'm thinking about the voting tomorrow and how many people will actually do anything differently than they did in the previous elections because they thought it out. And I, I, I just, this whole business for changing hearts and minds, chapter 10 in Pinker's book says, why are people so many dumb? And he points to the bubbles effect, which you've been talking about. And I just come away Gonna with it. Going to need you to find a question in there somewhere. <laughs> the question is, uh, I suppose about what the point that was made earlier about how do we deal with the children? And because that's where the salvation will lie. 
I'm going to Tony Jones that and take that as a comment. I, I do think there's a, rec- there's a book recommendation in there and there's an idea that, you know, perhaps, perhaps we're not as readily persuaded as we are. Thank you very much. We've got a- another question over this side. How important do you think information is to form an opinion? Now, I know we talked a little bit before this about misinformation and some of the misinformation that you had to deal with during the Sydney Festival boycotts. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> um, I think when we In were... general yeah, terms, maybe? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, were, we were discussing um, sort of... Uh, I think for me, what happened was uh, we were trying to have this campaign where we're convincing people to boycott the Sydney Festival uh, because uh, they had accepted sponsorship from, um, again, the State of Israel, and we had outlined, you know, that this would make you complicit, directly complicit in perpetuating uh, these atrocities, and I think for a country that is, uh, you know, and has been built on uh, the genocide of First Nations people and 200 years plus, uh, close to 300 of um, colonialism, we would understand that uh, being against or opposed to colonialism here means being opposed to any ongoing settler colonial projects around the world. So it was a very, it ended up becoming a very big campaign and it got traction really quickly and it was amazing because all these artists decided to um, support us and withdraw their participation from the festival. So in sort of what, in, in a vein to what I was saying earlier, it raised information, we were able to to, uh, sorry, raised awareness, we were able to give people the information and they had the agency to decide and to say, yes, we agree with your values, we share this in the struggle and we want to support you and withdraw. And so, of course, as is always the case, there will be people who come out and say all sorts of problematic, uh, misinformative uh, things and, and, and it was a really difficult um I think, position to be in, because on the one hand, you want to directly address that and counter the misinformation and, 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 and set the record straight. But on the other hand, uh, you don't want to get pulled into their frame and get defensive and reactive and start arguing, because that never works out well. So, so uh, you know, we've, we've uh, experienced. So I think it was it was a very big discussion that all of the campaigners had to constantly have. Like, do we respond to this or do we just keep doing what we're doing and bring people along, have this vision and say, this is what we want. Everybody deserves to live free and this is what we're fighting for and this is one way to do it, as opposed to just argue with people who are deliberately trying to undermine the campaign and spread this misinformation. At the end of the day, though, there will be people who might buy into that and you know it's uh, I'll, I'll see it when I believe it or I'll believe it when I see it as opposed to um, and there will be others who seek out information and, and also ask the right questions and come along and be open to that so it, it, I couldn't really tell you if, if we ended up with the you know doing the right thing but I think we did what we felt was right at the end of the day which is to for the most part ignore it. In the um the Uluru Statement campaign has been a very similar experience. You know, we've had to weigh that up because when it came out in 2017, it was almost immediate dismissal by the government. Um, and you had misinformation out there from the far right, but also from the far left, basically, you know. Um, and, uh, and we've worked out over the last five years that if we just continue to put our truth out there about what this is about, um, there is a massive middle Australia that when they hear this truth, they come onto our side, you know, and that's the experience there too. One question. 
Thank you. Um, thank you all. You've been really illuminating today. You asked us at the beginning what helped you change your mind. For me, it was shame and shock that caused me self-reflection and changed my behavior. Do you think the pandemic, which is also um, regarded as a lot of self-reflection time, will change our behavior and our hearts and minds as a nation? Yeah, maybe, maybe if we targeted that. Carl, you've mentioned a little bit the idea of a political imagination. Is Maybe if we centered on that, has there been something about the last few years that is an opportunity for a new kind of political imagination? I think there is. I think that we've spent the last 40 years, kind of my adult life uh, since the 1980s, being, uh, having the idea of small government and withdrawal of, of government and, uh, you know, deregulation and free markets and globalization kind of pushed and pushed upon us. And I think what the pandemic showed us was that the private sector and the idea of the market cannot solve the world's big problems. Mm. Um, it could not, you know, the response to COVID, mixed as it's been, um, uh, was about massive government investment, big government injections of funds into the economy, managing public health. Markets aren't suitable for this. I think this is the big lesson that the, the blind faith in markets that has drawn us down the path of inequality for the last 40 years, it doesn't have to be that way. I think that's the lesson we should learn. Mm -hmm. Where I don't think that it's necessarily being learned, however. Yeah. And I would add to that, markets aren't the answer and neither is being um, subjected to national security or securitized as a problem. And so I think for me, when I think about what got us through the pandemic, for example, arts, the arts got us through the pandemic. And yet, ironically, it is being defunded, just like education and just like other um, important institutions. This isn't, this is no accident. And this is why I think, um, for me, you know, I talk about the arts and I offer it as one, uh, let's say, solution. You know, poetry, writing stories, sharing, isn't necessarily going to uh, end the injustices in the world. It's not going to shut down detention centers, I always say, and nor is my you know, poem on Palestine going to stop the apartheid regime tomorrow. But I do think that poetry and storytelling is so important because it is what creates language and shapes thought. And that is what also enables people to take meaningful action day to day. And that is, that is I think, the, the groundwork for uh, transformative politics. That is the vision, and that is what, uh, for me, arts definitely has a has a hand in playing. There is no neat way to close a session <laughs> like this with um, with answers, um, and so we're not going to do that. We're actually going to change it in, close it in a different way. Um, when we're talking about changing hearts and minds, one thing that we haven't really discussed is the act of bearing witness. And so Thomas has very generously offered to close the session by reading the full text of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is what we're going to experience now. Just, just because I'd like to close with those words, before we do that, could you please thank our panel, Thomas Mayer, Sarah Saleh, and Carl Rhodes. Thank you, Thank you. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, 
make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born there from remain attached there too, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? That a people's possessed the land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliened from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our own destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk in two worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.